Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Metasodes. Today we have an interview with Dr. Pruti Chaudhary, who's a GP in Sutton Coldfield. Hello there, hi. My name is Dr. Pruti Chaudhary. I'm one of the GPs. I live in Sutton, um, but I work in Litchfield. Okay, so should we start at the start of your medical journey? So mm -hmm. um, could you tell us a bit about uh, where you went, where you study medicine and why you study medicine? Okay. So um, I initially did a degree in biomedical sciences in Manchester, and while doing that, I did a placement in haematology in one of the hospitals, and I kind of felt that's where I wanted to do medicine because I enjoyed following the consultant doing bone marrow biopsies more than sitting in a lab looking at um, slides and things. That's where I became inspired to do medicine. So I applied for a postgraduate degree uh, at Warwick Medical School and um, fortunately I got in. I do come from a family of doctors, my dad, my granddad, my brother. So I kind of was aware of the challenges medicine puts at you. But to be honest, in the beginning, it kind of dissuaded me. But having worked in the NHS, in the hospitals, I was like, no, this is what I want to do. Yes. And um, how would you say, so you did graduate entry, would you say, compared to the people who did medicine straight from school, do you think there was a difference between them? I believe there was because our cohort was um, filled with people who had done pharmacy, who had come from all sorts of walks of life. They were much more experienced. I think the oldest person in our class was 45 who had worked for the WHO. And so everyone had a, you know, had a huge amount of experience before coming into medicine. So they were a lot more dedicated, I felt. They were a lot more keen to learn. Um, and incredibly enthusiastic. I'd say I probably was one of the youngest people in the cohort. Uh, but yeah, I, I felt that they had, I mean, I might be biased, but I felt that they were slightly more mature to take on the responsibilities and to understand what's involved in doing medicine. Okay, so <clears throat> from there you did, uh, so you did your five years of medicine? So no, so because I was post-grad and I had done a degree in biomedical sciences, I did a four-year degree. Um, so our first year was pretty much recapping what we'd done in biomedical sciences. And then we had three clinical years. Okay. And then after that, you did two foundation years? That's right. So I got my um, foundation year jobs in Queen Elizabeth Hospital, Birmingham. Um, and I did my um, F2 in Heartlands Hospital. So I did two years of foundation. Um, during that, I chose to do all the specialities that I wanted to do and get experience in. So I had a really good um, combination of jobs. I did hematology, general medicine, uh, respiratory, cardiology. Um, but I kind of, um, I was torn between hematology and general practice. But then when I did general practice, it was in a beautiful quaint village in um, Knoll near Solihull. And I thought, nah, this is, this is what I want to do. <laughs> okay, so you thought that the general practice was nicer than the hospital work? I think it was more the flexibility because by then um, I'd already married um, a doctor as well who mm. had decided to do hospital medicine. And we kind of felt um, it was a better work-life balance. And I enjoy general practice. I'm, I like the fact that you're 
a jack of all trades. Um, you kind of know a little bit about everything and life is just not boring because every patient walks in with a different complaint, different problem. Do you, do you not feel like tired after like everyone's coming to you, nagging you like, doctor, doctor, please, can you help me? <laughs> I, I have, there are some days when I'm completely mentally exhausted. Mm, I like a word saying decision fatigue because you're constantly making decisions about whoever is coming. You're constantly thinking what it could be. Um, so it can be a bit tiring. There's a lot of mental health in the community, which can become a bit exhausting. Having said that, I still uh, feel you, you just do one good thing for somebody and one person has to say, doctor, you changed my life or thank you for diagnosing me or thank you for sorting me out. And I think that kind of takes away all the uh, sort of, you know, the tiredness from the job. Um, how, would you, how would you compare hospital medicine and dental practice? What's the difference between the workloads? So the workloads, okay, that's an interesting question. So hospital medicine um, is tiring because you're working longer hours, but any, in a way it's all protocol driven, okay? So everyone in every hospital throughout the country is following the same protocol. So you're not, you, you sort of, everyone comes in, works as a team. So you're offloading to each other as well. So that is the advantage of being in hospital, but the disadvantage is you're working long hours, you're doing nights, okay? Um, and you're constantly sort of clocking patients and things like that. General practice, it might be flexible where you're working shorter hours, but it's very intensive because you're seeing a patient every 10 minutes. So you're constantly having to write one out, second, third, so what I'm trying to say is, it's not very protocol driven, okay? Because you have to make decisions on the spot. So I would say both have their pros and cons. So I wouldn't want you to think general practice is an easy branch. Oh, you know, you only work nine to five or you can choose and pick your mm -hmm. sessions. It's not that because you're also doing a lot of admin work. You're doing an incredible amount of writing up and the lot lots more comes with general practice not just seeing patients whereas in hospital medicine at the lower level where your house officer SHO registrar you're not dealing with that much admin work and of course you've been a general practitioner for a good few years now how has work changed over those years so not talking about the last two years and COVID but over your over the course of your career how has general practice changed so I've been a GP now for more than 10 years. Um, and um, as a junior, again, a general practitioner, you kind of sort of move up the ladder. Um, so uh, now that I'm a senior GP, I took on a lot more job roles. So general practice has become more demanding. The patient load has increased incredibly. The number of doctors haven't increased as much as the patients have. So. I do feel that it's becoming more and more exhausting, particularly I feel there is a lot more mental health um, in the community, which, which I feel that as doctors, we don't have that much expertise. It's all well and good to push them onto mental health services and things like that. But all the monitoring, all the follow-up, everything is left for GPs to do. And also secondary care is putting a lot more chronic disease management on GPs, uh, are making that the GP's responsibility. So we are dealing with a lot more chronic diseases that used to be managed in the hospital, but now general practitioners are managing it. Mm -hmm. 
So as you were saying with mental health, you're the safeguarding lead for your practice. That's so correct, yeah. How did, how did you become that? And like, what does that actually entail in terms of what you do on top of your GP job? So as a GP, you have to take on responsibility in one area of medicine. So somebody will become a clinical lead for asthma, someone will become a clinical lead for diabetes. So you kind of have to take on these extra job roles. So I, to be honest, I kind of got into it because there was no one else to do it really. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll do it. Um, it's interesting because you're looking after, you're identifying and looking after the children and the vulnerable adults. And if you think somebody is at risk, so you'll become the sort of the person to go to. So if anyone is worried about a child they've seen or a parent they've seen, they'll come and talk to me and say, what do you think? And I'll be like, yeah, this is appropriate for safeguarding. Um, but they'll do the referral. I hold a safeguarding meeting every six weeks. so I'm aware of all the patients who are on the safeguarding list so that we can keep an eye um, and offer them support wherever they need it. So you mentioned how a lot of the responsibilities when it comes to sort of chronic diseases and the hospital or mental health and mental health agencies are now shifting to GPs. How do you think GPs are like coping with this like influx of workload that's being shifted to them? So again, um, even if you say that our working hours are from say nine to five or we've got a session, I can't remember the last time I finished on time. Okay, so um, I if if say I'm paid to do a four hour, 10 minute session, which is what the BMA allows, I'm usually working six hours, seven hours, because there is no way you can finish that much amount of work in the given time. Um, you might know that there are partners, salary GPs um, in the practice. If you're a partner, then it becomes your responsibility to finish the work. So. I don't think I've ever seen the partners leave the practice before eight o'clock in the evening, 7.30 in the evening. So, so it is becoming frustrating. There is a lot of frustration amongst general practitioners. Plus all the media is always opposing the GPs. So I feel there's a lot of negativity around it that we're sitting not doing anything. Um, but I kind of feel if only you could see what happens behind the closed doors, you'll realize that I, I can't remember me having a lunch break ever. So I'm, I'm sort of eating my sandwich while I'm doing the bloods. So uh, it's exhausting. It's an exhausting job, but the job satisfaction comes and just about breaks it even, I would say. <laughs> uh, so we had a question about how COVID-19 has changed your um, work work in terms of uh, general practice. So could you explain a bit about that? Sure. So co when COVID hit, it was it was quite scary because um, people were literally dropping like flies in the sense that our practice was down from 10 GPs to one GP within a week um, because everyone was falling ill, staff was short. Because um, we were in direct contact with all these patients who can just walk in. So we had to shut our doors um, and we had to use all the, we, we struggled to get PPE for the first few weeks. So, so and one of, our, uh, one of our GPs was in ICU as well. So for six weeks, so it was quite a scary time. Um, so at that point, then home working became more. So we were seeing all patients face to face, but as soon as COVID happened, we all transferred to tra telephone triaging. 
but we didn't shut our doors to patients. People who needed seeing, who needed clinical attention, we would bring them into the practice, have a look at them and sort them out. So this concept of GPs not seeing patients isn't quite true. I think what we are doing now is trying to figure out whether you need to come and see a doctor. Because if something we can sort out on the phone, then it's much easier Then you're protected in your own home environment. And we are protected as well. Um, if you're, the workload did increase because when you're doing telephone triaging as opposed to face-to-face, -face, you have to take all the more precaution, safety netting, you need to make sure the patient is safe. So you're taking a lot more responsibility of your decisions and you need to make sure it's the right decision as well. So if you're, the number of appointments probably even went up because you're telephone triaging so you can accommodate more patients, okay? Um, and there's been a huge influx of other people coming in as well, like paramedics, physician assistants, ANPs, um, who are helping our general practitioners as well. So it has changed quite a bit with COVID-19. And do you think that telephone triaging, so you mentioned before, all patients would be seen in person. Do you think the online consulting and telephone triaging is something that will stay even after the pandemic? Or do you think it will go back to how it was before? I think it'll stay because that increases the capacity of the practice. If somebody has had an operation and needs a sick note, I don't need to see them in person to give that sick note to them. I can see the letter from the hospital. I can see that they've had knee surgery and I can do it. Before, even to get a sick note, they had to make a 10 minute appointment. So I think that's a waste of time of a GP's time really. However, if you're coming with say a diabetic foot or you've got high blood pressure, even that I can manage. I don't need to see you've got high blood pressure. All you need to do is see the nurse, tell me you've got, they'll tell me that they've got high, and I just adjust the medication. So I think we've become more efficient. And I think this is the message I wanna put across to people through meds. So it's that, it's not that we're not seeing patients, it's more that we're being more efficient so that the people who have, say it's a rash or a mole, then I need to see you. And even then we have gotten something called Acurix where they can send pictures, we can do video consulting. So I feel like we've become more efficient because of COVID, because I think we can handle a larger volume of patients because we've got all these other modes to um, communicate with them. Well, I guess one question we'd have is that many of the people in, like many of the patients are maybe elderly Mm -hmm. And do you think they've been able to, the patients have been able to adapt to video and telephone, or do you think they will prefer to see GP in person? You're right. I think the younger generations are more keen, are more happier to do video consults and telephone consults. The elderly are kind of a little bit more skeptical. And it, it was a bit of a trend, a bit of a fashion to go and see the GP because we would have frequent visitors. Oh, I just thought I'll come and say hello to you. Uh, but we can't now cope with that kind of thing. We, we're not there just for checking somebody's well-being without providing sort of, you know, urgent care in a way. So, um, so the elderly are sort of, and 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 also the big. I think the what needs to improve is the telephone system and how you can get an appointment. I think the biggest issue patients have is getting an appointment, getting through to the GP practice. So maybe that's something that needs um, updating. But as far as elderly are concerned, again, if we feel that they need to come and see us, uh, 
I would probably say the number of face-to-face -face I have done, 90% have been elderly patients. Because I think with multiple comorbidities, you can't make a decision over the phone. So you have to see them in person. Yeah, so you've mentioned that work-life balance as a GP is not good and you're, you're often working three or four hours after the time is finished. And of course, there's a shortage of GPs nowadays and less and less people are choosing to follow general practice. So what are your techniques for, for balancing a good work and life? How, would you, how do you maintain that? So I think this is what forces general practitioners to do part-time. You'll see very few GPs now doing full-time uh, work, uh, purely because A, you can't cope with so many sessions, B, the workload is way too much, and you can't afford to come every day, half eight, nine, you know, in the evening. So most people would do part-time. So that's what I do as well. So I work in the mornings. So I drop my children off to school. Then I'm working, although I'm meant to work nine to one, but I'm working till three and I pick them up and I come home. Um, so I think part, so, but that is the advantage of general practice that you can choose how many sessions you wish to do. So say I've chosen six because I can work four half days and then the one full day where my husband then helps out with the children. So, and also I, I, we have to do something called, um, you might've come across this, we have to do something called appraisals where we have to show how we are helping our own mental well-being. So I've done yoga, I kind of, we have all these GP forums, we kind of chat to each other. So um, it kind of, when you know that everyone's in the same boat, you kind of feel okay, <laughs> you just carry on. Yeah. 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 And we know that general practice is becoming less and less popular. And especially with students who are deciding whether to do medicine, generally hospital specialties seem more attractive. And, and medical students as well may try for hospital specialties first too. So what would you say to these people to try and, to try and encourage them to do general practice? I'd say um, general practice, the best thing about general practice is the variety. Uh, it's the, it, it's what you, like I said, you don't know who's coming through the door, what problem they're going to come with. Um, you're, you might be dealing with the most trivial thing to the most complex thing. And I do feel like general practitioners, you're taking on more of a role of a community elderly care specialist in a way, because you're managing people with multiple comorbidities. As a specialist, you're only looking at your own area of expertise. So if somebody has diabetes, that's all you're looking at. Whereas a GP, I'm looking at the same person who's got diabetes, hypertension, who's got COPD because they probably were a smoker, um, who's got a rash, which might be cancerous. So what I'm trying to say is that you are dealing with the person as a whole, rather than just choosing a small area to look at. So that's what fascinates me. Um, and, I'm, and the other, op, like I said, that you do still have the flexibility in hospital medicine. You're kind of stuck with what you have to do. Um, whereas here you can pick and choose. So say for instance, you decide this is too much for me. I want to branch out, then you can do that. You can do locum work, you can do training, you can do teaching. So there's a lot, lot more variety that you're doing even as a GP. Talking about the sort of variety of cases you say you get walking through your door, do you have any sort of really memorable cases that stick out in your mind? So um, 
I had this um, this this uh, patient, the 16 year old boy come to me who had a really weird rash on his ear and I'd never seen it before. And I was like, I have no idea what this is. So I took a picture of it and I said, let me have a think about it and I'll get back to you. The next day, his granddad walks in with exactly the same rash and he goes, oh, I had this rash before 20 years ago. I forget the name now. And he goes, this is what it was called. And it took years for the dermatologist to find out what this was, but this is what it is. So I said, oh, okay, you made my job a lot easier. <laughs> so I just Googled it. And, 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 and I even put that in my thing because I just thought it was just, it would have taken me ages to find out what this rash was. But the fact that the granddad came in the next day um, exactly with the same thing, I was like, okay, this is what it is. Um, and I just had to give them some steroid cream and it was sorted. Otherwise it would have taken me so many referrals and this and that before I would have got to the bottom of it. <laughs> would you say you often find yourself working with people in the same family as part of your GP or like working with the same sort of families? So to be honest, that's what family medicine was. That's what general practice was, where you would have one GP who's looked at the grandparents, the parents and the grandkids as well. And you stayed in one practice. Unfortunately, that's changing now because GPs move around a lot. Okay, so um, and there's a lot of locums. So you uh, it's not so much a trend now to stay in a practice. Normally, if you're a partner, then you'll be in that practice. But um, so but yes, I have I have looked at I've been in a practice for 10 years and now I've seen there is a 35 year old grandmother who has got a 16 year old daughter who just had a baby. So I could probably say I've seen all three generations of that family. <laughs> so, you know, yes, you are looking after generations. Um, you've made an interesting point there about how nowadays GPs are moving around a lot more and there's like less time to sort of become fixed in one practice. Do you think that that combined with the increase in sort of e-consulting and telephone triaging, do you think GPs are maybe losing that sort of personal touch that older generations would know them for? Yeah, I think because monetarily it makes more sense uh, there's less uh, pressure when you're doing e-consulting or locuming or you know and you can pick and choose your shift so say for instance you've got young children I can do e-consulting from 10 till two o'clock at night do you see what I mean so um, it's becoming more of a trend not to stick in one place but to do little things everywhere so uh purely for financial reasons, for flexibility, for ease, for family life. Uh, so that is that is happening uh, a lot more. But you will still find um, the senior partners who've been there for 20 years, 25 years, who know the practice really well, who know each and every practice. Uh, so you'll still find a couple of those in a, in a practice, but not all, not all the GPs are like that. Well, given that you've experienced a lot of years in GP there must be like some common cases that you might have seen through the years so what are the most like common cases that you've encountered so I'd probably say depression um, I'd probably say if you're seeing about 18 to 20 patients in one surgery you'll probably get at least three or four with mental health problems could be depression anxiety stress at work these kind of things 
Um, you see a lot of chronic conditions again. So like I said, we're managing hypertension, diabetes, things like that. Dermatology, there's a lot of dermatology and a lot of pediatrics as well. But this is more sort of the RTs, the upper respiratory tract infections and things and worried mums in a way. Because again, you know, that time has gone when you could ask your mother or your grandmother, how do I treat this? Can I use some home remedies? Now, if a child even sneezes once, they'll be on the phone to the doctor to say, what, what do I do? So I think patients need that kind of reassurance. So majority of my job is just reassuring patients to say, no, you, you're going to be okay. This is all right. It's okay. This is normal, you know? So along with doing all the clinical stuff, you're also playing a huge role in reassuring patients. They'll come back from the hospital given a diagnosis of cancer. They'll be like, oh, I don't understand. They use such big words. What, what do they mean by this? What do they mean by that? So you're kind of the medium between the patient and the secondary care where you're explaining things in a lot simpler terms. So you, your, your role is very, very varied and wide, you know? So um, yeah. You're a counselor as well. So you're kind of doing a lot of things, a lot of things. You mentioned that um, there was a lot of depression cases and anxiety. So how do you feel that the role of how you tackle depression and anxiety and mental health has changed over the years? So to be honest, I don't think people were quite aware that depression and anxiety exists. You know, if God forbid somebody passes away in the family, you know, you're going to go through that whole series of grief reaction. But because we are in such a um, rush to get better, why am I feeling sad? Why am I doing this? I, you know, so I would probably say before 20, 30 years, depression, anxiety weren't even that recognized. But now people are more aware of their emotions and also the stresses in life people are dealing with so many things that stress and anxiety has become much more common because unfortunately we are all lacking coping mechanisms before you probably had a bigger family support you could talk to people now people are being isolated um, there's no one to talk to so if you're feeling sad or bereaved everyone wants a quick quick fix um, so I feel which is why I feel depression anxiety has become a huge um, part of general practice because they just want to speak to somebody who will understand what they're going through and they've got no one to talk to. And as you said, all these things about depression, bereavement, all these things have been obviously over the last one and a half years, they've been accelerated and even more people. Would you say that these depression, those depression cases were have become even more during the pandemic or were they already on the rise before the pandemic? No, I would say there's a definite, definite increase because of isolation, because people have been forced to be in their own environment and somebody who's already struggling with, uh, you know, uh, anxiety or agoraphobia, now they've got even more reason to stay at home and not come out. So now getting those people out of those houses is very, very difficult. We had a huge job to get these people out to have vaccines because they were so used to being in their home environment and became so anxious that they wouldn't even come out to have their vaccine. So we had to sort of employ strategies where there would be no one and we'd be doing it in their car. So we have to adapt as well uh, to make sure that we can give good care to all these, all these patients. We, we have something called social prescribing. So the elderly, 
uh, who were living on their own, whose family couldn't visit them for a year, two years. Can you imagine living in a home just on your own for a whole year, not having seen a single person? You would be depressed, I would be depressed. So we had this new service called social prescribing where we employed a nurse to actually just do a well-being check just to call them every week to say, how are you doing? So we have sort of found strategies, but I would definitely agree the anxiety and depression is on the rise, um, more so because of the pandemic. So obviously this rise in sort of mental health cases is growing to be like a big problem for public health. Do you think there's been enough support for GPs who are obviously on the front line of dealing with this from the wider NHS and an extension to that, the government? So unfortunately, although we have got these counselling services, they are so inundated that if I, and you can self-refer to these services, so my job would be to give them the number to ring. But if you ring them, the appointment they're getting is probably four months down the line. So these services are hugely inundated. So it's a bit of a difficult situation um, because, because of the rise. I don't think we have got enough services to cope with that influx of people. Uh, so then these people sort of go round and round in circles really, because they can't get an appointment, they come back to the GP. Then I'm thinking, okay, let's try some medication. But you all know that medication, you can't treat somebody's emotions. You can't make somebody who's feeling sad happy, you know. So it's very, um, it's, it's a difficult, difficult uh, thing to kind of sort out in a way. Um, so would you say with that, that maybe, would you, do you think that, can GPs refer, use charities or things like that, or would you say even the charities are completely overwhelmed? They are overwhelmed, but um, they are bringing more and more. The government is trying to sort of put some money towards it, some more funding into it. But I think it'll, it'll take a bit of time. Uh, but yeah, there are, there are, you know, you might have heard of the Samaritans and you've heard of sort of, you know, there are different agencies and CAMs and things like that who are also helping out. So um, I'm hoping it'll improve a little bit. I think with this COVID pandemic hopefully coming to an end, maybe things will improve. This might be a bit of a broad or slightly difficult question to answer, but where do you see GPs and their sort of role in the healthcare going in the future? So I personally feel that general practitioners are also going to be sort of specialists um, for the elderly and all the simpler stuff like managing urinary tract infections, upper respiratory tract infections, things which are much more simpler will be taken over by the allied team. So by them, I mean the paramedics um, and the ANPs, advanced nurse practitioners and physician assistants. So physician assistants are people who do a degree for three years and they're literally trained to a house officer level. Uh, so they do all the basic clerking and man 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 management. So my feeling is that we'll become more specialists in managing people with multiple comorbidities, so, uh, which is usually the elderly, where they've got three, four, five different medical problems, and we are sort of managing those. That's what I think will happen. To be honest, it's already starting to happen, which is why seeing a patient in 10 minutes is just not feasible anymore, 
because you're not dealing with one problem in 10 minutes, you're dealing with five problems in 10 minutes. that GPs are gonna, especially with the new, I think they're gonna revise the new, the structure of the NHS now with the internal market, they're gonna scrap the internal market. Would you say that now GPs are gonna work much more with hospitals? Well, at the moment, they're just referring them to hospitals and getting the letters back. Would you say now they're gonna be actually talking to the consultant themselves and trying to work out what's wrong with this patient? So I think there's a lot of talk about um, having community consultants. So uh, hospital practitioners will come into the community and do a few clinics. So we're not we're avoiding the whole hospital pathway and hospitals will be for urgent care only. Um, we've already got something called Consultant Connect where we can call up a consultant if if we want to ask a question, which we're not, we're not quite sure how to manage it. Say, for instance, somebody's got really bizarre thyroid levels and I don't know what dose to start them on and things, <clears throat> I can connect onto this Consultant Connect. So there's a lot more um, interaction between secondary and primary care. Whereas before secondary care would be like, just go back to your GP um, and GPs will be like, go back to your consultant. So hopefully <laughs> that will, uh, that, that, that's improving with more communication um, being established. And also a lot with these like isolation issues and like mental health, would you say that even like social care and like social, I'm sure it's called, care, care workers. Social services, yeah. Social services have a much more larger role to play within health as well. 100%, 100%. I think as a GP, you work as a team, okay? It's a multidisciplinary team. You cannot do everything on your own. So you have to have the help of social services, social care, and they kind of help with managing, particularly the really elderly in the, in, the, in the community. They are the ones who are sort of sorting them out. So yes, absolutely. They are overwhelmed as well, but they're doing a fantastic job. So thank you for talking, us, talking to us today, Dr. Chaudhary. I think we've really learned a lot from what you can say about GP. And I hope that on top of our own episode about GPs that Dr. Chaudhary helped us with, I'm sure that uh, you've got a better window into what it's like and thank you for coming you're most welcome i hope you have answered most of your questions um but just to say that general practice is fantastic if you do take it i know it has its challenges but i still recommend it i wouldn't have done anything else other than this so uh, you know so please 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 think about general practice if you are doing medicine we need more gps definitely mm -hmm.